Hello and welcome to the latest in the Balderton podcast series. I'm Ben Goldsmith and I'm here in Paris with Olivier Payes, who is the CEO and founder of Aircall. Good afternoon. Hi, Ben. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about is something quite unique to Aircall, which is very early on in your growth when you were very much smaller in team size. And I say this whilst looking out at Olivier's new office here in the center of Paris. Um, you made the decision to go to 500 startups in the USA. So rather than you know joining one of the many incubator programs in Paris or London or anywhere else in Europe, you made a real quite large and, and fundamental decision to go to the USA. Quite simply, why did you make that call? And what were the smaller questions you were asking yourself when you were making that decision? Right. Uh, very important question in our story. Um, <laughs> essentially, when we created Aircall about two years ago, we started creating a US company. So from day one, we incorporated in the US with a French subsidiary because we knew if we wanted to build something big, it would need to be a US company. We knew the biggest market is the US, it's more advanced for what we're selling, and we knew that at some point we would move there. And we, do, we, we did that, and we worked, let's say, about a year on the product, and it was really hard. The product was not working, the tech was not under control. And at some point we said, hey, we've got this team, we were four guys at the time, and we just need to get on the front line, really get confronted to the most demanding markets, and yes, European customers love our product, but what will US customers say? So we want to spend time there. So reason number one is, hey, if we do an accelerator, let's do it in the US. And second, we wanted to just basically bond the team together. What I knew from day one is we're going to have a very long journey uh, with Oracle. It's a SaaS. So we want to have these four pillars. So we're four guys, four founders. We want them to be extremely bonded. And so we said, hey, let's spend four months all together in San Francisco and just living the toughest market for us. And if we can survive that, then we'll be strong enough for the next years to come. So that was the key reasons. That is a, a very interesting reason, almost giving yourself a baptism of fire, as they say in the UK, the most difficult birth, straight into the frying pan. Um, there'll be lots of early stage entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. I know we have a few in the, in the listenership who are considering going on accelerator programs and are probably thinking of those closer to home before they look abroad to the 500s and the YCs, etc. As someone that's gone through an accelerator program, and obviously e-founders here in uh, Paris as well, what would you recommend? What are the key questions that that entrepreneur needs to sit down and ask themselves before they commit to doing any of the accelerator programs? Because it's a big commitment and often you're parting with an equity position and you're, you're certainly uh, spending a lot of time. It will be three, four months of, of time. Yeah. So I think the first question is, is, uh, is a timing question. So I think we did it at the right time. Uh, maybe a little too late, slightly too late, but for us it was really the right time for different reasons. Uh, what I saw in the accelerator is that some companies were just too early. So if you don't have like a clear product, some clear ideas, then it's a, it's a bit of a waste of time because it really helps you say, hey, I'm, I have a point A and I'm going to go really fast to point B. But if you're not even at point A and you don't really know where you are, it helps, but you don't get all the value. And I think for us, the big value, especially at 500 startups, they're really good at working on growth. 
doing experiments every week. You test new things and try to you just growth hacking. Just mm. try things, fail, succeed, but just iterate a lot. If you have something to iterate on, that's good. If you don't, well, you iterate on a concept, but I think it's less, less useful. And the second thing is, I think it's tremendously useful for European entrepreneurs. Um, and when I say European, I said non-US entrepreneurs. To go to the US yeah, specifically. Exactly. Because, and I think, the, I mean, the companies that got the biggest benefit out of 500 startups were a few Brazilian companies, uh, Swedish companies, Polish companies, French companies, because, I mean, that's really, you get the Silicon Valley way of thinking. I mean, we went, in, we went into the accelerators thinking, hey, we've got kind of a nice product, but we don't really know what we're going to do with that. And we went out saying, we're going to build, we've got a huge ambition. We're going to build something that's going to be huge. We're going to build a world company. And now we've, we've been confronted to the market, and we know what the market wants. And that was tremendously, tremendously uh, helpful to us. So it's really, you go out of your comfort zone, like in Paris, where you know, the, the life goes slower, and we felt that you <laughs> go to San Francisco and life goes faster. You know, investors are more aggressive, people are more aggressive, and that helps a lot, uh, especially if you're not from the US, I think. And was the plan always to bring the business back to Paris as you have? Because we're in your rather nice new office here watching the team move in. Yeah, um, I think, well, two of the four uh, co-founders are tech people. And very early we figured out that, I mean, it, would not make sense to build a tech team in the US. We can have fantastic engineers here, we can add them easily. Uh, for low salaries, we can get, have a lot of advantages uh, from the state in the, in the first years. So we've been able to build the team from like two in December to 12 now, and we're in May. Not that complicated. It's not super easy, the market is tense, but it's not that complicated, and the salaries are like half, more than half what you could find in, in, in the US. But you, you don't feel that you have any uh, particular issue finding the right kind of talent? No, it? no, no, honestly not. I mean, uh, we're, we're built on technologies that are like Ruby on Rails, WebRTC, AngularJS. I mean, kind of advanced technology, recent technologies, but not like unique. And I think we've got the chance to have great engineers in France. So from, from day one, we knew we would do that. And I think that's for the tech part. For, for the business side, I mean, it's, it's more dubious. So we now have an office in the US that we're scaling up. So we have only, right now we have three people. Uh, we're gonna have about 10 people right after summer, like in September. And myself, typically I'm gonna be traveling between US and, 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 and Europe, and potentially at some point move to the US. I think that will make sense. Um, but we'll do that when we have the structure so that we can really accommodate two sides um, between Paris and, and the US. It seems even though at your genesis, Aircall was a company that would be transatlantic, it would be European and American at the same time. Was there difficulties, teething problems when you first opened the US office? What were the, what were the things, if you were to do it all again, that you would uh, do differently, potentially? Well, I can tell you what, what happened to us is that, so we moved to San Francisco for four months, right? Mm. And we left here in Europe, we left like two interns and one developer <laughs> alone for a couple of months. And they did a great job. But then we realized that the distance was too much. And that when we came back from 500 startups, we thought, hey, if we build a San Francisco team and a Paris team, we're going to have two teams, two cultures. We're not going to be able to have the people bond together, to meet often. So we decided to move our office from San Francisco to New York. 
And the idea is that, like yesterday we hired a US guy, first thing he's gonna do next week is gonna come one week to Paris. He's gonna meet the tech team. I want him to know the tech team, to know all the team here and feel the fire. So we have a fire in Paris because we've yeah. got the big team and everyone is just like, what, what we call the fuego, no? It's, we have to make it happen yeah. at any cost. And we want that, that culture and team spirit to, to apply to the US as well, right? So that was one of the difficulty and I think, I mean, it's, it's a typical question that as a European startup you would have, right? Where do I set myself? So Silicon Valley is like closer to like, like the top market, the investors. We made the choice to say, hey, at this moment, our biggest strength is the team and we want the best possible team and the best possible team spirit. So let's just move the team to New York and create that proximity between New York and Paris. That's really fascinating. So the thing you've really majored on when opening your second office in New York office is culture. It's particularly fascinating because a lot of our entrepreneurs that we have on this podcast, especially uh, Roland from Rolly, who recently raised uh, $27 million, the thing he spoke about for the majority of time was culture because it is so important to their team and what they do. Uh, would you say your Paris culture and your New York culture needs to be different in any way, purely because, hey, Parisian culture in general is different to New York? Or will you try and almost copy and then reinvent the air core culture wherever you go? One of my objectives as a CEO and the objective of the, of the, of the founders is to have the same culture. And to have, we have a culture that's really, let's say, low-key, can we say that? Yeah. So, like, what we love to say between us is we're not the smartest, but we never give up. We're just going to, 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 going to where we, we, let's say, we're going to succeed because we insist and we try again and we never give up. So you're so, modest and passionate at the same time. Yeah, no, I don't know if we can say that, but yes. <laughs> so we want to have big ambitions, but, like, be very humble. And we typically, we've hired here a lot of people that make have very particular curriculums, yeah. don't come out of the best schools, but they've demonstrated that they can do awesome things. The things that are really, we value a lot things that go out of the, of the normal. And so this is the culture that I think we can have. We have that in Paris and we can have it in the US. Doesn't mean that we take anyone, right? Just because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's motivated. Uh, we're kind of very demanding on the hires. But I think we want to have the same culture of, you know, just be very operational, I mean, prove that you can bring something to the company and then the company will give back to you. So that's really, that's really the kind of culture we want to have. And moving to investment, because of course we, uh, Balderton, our investment in Aircall was announced in uh, January of this year, I believe. And already it feels that that's gone a long way. You've moved office and you've grown your team by quite a size since we first met. How do you manage that growth? We've spoken about culture, but the actual hiring of um, a large amount of people, because how large was your team in January and how compared to now? So January we were like seven and now we're 28. So you've added 21 new individuals, both in Paris and uh, New York yeah, over New that York, time. Yeah. And that process must have thrown up a few challenges, especially when you're trying to uh, instill such a strong and defined culture. Uh, I mean, how did you overcome them? How did you find the right people at such speed, I suppose? So we do spend a lot of time interviewing people and receiving people, really a lot, a lot of time. And especially we do, uh, we, let's say, our, we don't have a structured interviewing process, but we're like four 
founders and we generally do all the interviews. So we make sure, I mean, we're all very different, mm. but we share the same values of, we want people that we know when they come, they're not going to, to give lessons to anyone else, they're going to start working, prove they're good, and then they expect to grow with the company. This is essentially what we're looking, uh, what we're looking for when we hire. Um, so it's, it's a lot of effort in sourcing. I mean, we've been building bots to crawl LinkedIn, try to find attractive people at other startups. <laughs> we've been contacting directly people that some people recommended to us. We've been using extensively all the possible channels from talent, IO, hired, headhunters. We organize events uh, at our offices, these kind of things. Um, and so th th that's really a big effort. Mm. And, and uh, on the same time as well, is something that we care a lot about kind of getting some diversity. So trying to balance that as well by sourcing a mix of people that are very different, especially, I mean, we could have the temptation to say, hey, we're gonna have uh, whatever, white male engineers mm -hmm. from on the tech side and French école de commerce on the business side, trying to diverse, diversify that. And I think so far we've succeeded, more or less, so that's, that's cool. Um, so I think the, um, I think the, the common point is I mean, realizing that when you grow the team, you just, I mean, the four founders we know we're gonna spend, let's say about half of our time hiring. And if you know that, and you know that's the most important thing you, you have to do, then you just do it, right? Temptation would be, hey, let's just, you know, spend less time, find the first guy that, you know, we can see, and it, it looks good, it's fine, and then I can dedicate more time on doing the job. We typically do the other way, the other way around, right? spend more time on hiring. So would a piece of advice to an entrepreneur that's right at the beginning of their hiring be that you need to realize that this is going to take a lot of your day? Not try and get this done quickly, but devote the time to it, open up your diary to it. Yes. I mean, again, I'm not sure I'm in a position to give advice because it's really early and <laughs> maybe we've done mistakes that we'll see later. I mean, as you said... But in your experience, speaking but, purely from your experience... Yeah, what I've thought, seen... Um, and we typically had the temptation to, to hire people because it was like easier, it was like, you know, you do four or five interviews, four or five, you see four or five candidates and you say, okay, the fifth guy is, is good. It seems good, something is not perfectly, but something, I don't know what, but it's good, mm. let's take it. And we never, I mean, we did not do that. So we say, if we're not 100% convinced, it's right to just look for more candidates, you know, lose more time. And so, yes, if there's an advice, it's just, um, I mean, try to really, I mean, know that you're going to need to invest a lot of time. And second, think that this is not a sprint. So finding the best people, this is a marathon. So once you found the best guy, the good guy, that you're 100% at his with, and you say, this guy is really the guy I want, then this guy will work for you probably one, two, three years. So it's much better to, for me, waste a bit more time at the beginning and make sure yeah. you've got a proper team in place. And on the subject of time, it's on the recent eFounders blog about you moving out of uh, their place, that you met over 125 investors when you were raising. Uh, and that, once again, must have been a massive pressure on the time of the founders, especially because it means that you're spending time away from the core product of Aircall. If you went to raise funding again, would you go and meet 125 people, or would you do it the same way, or would you change your approach somehow? Well, the first thing is that's not, I'm not sure that's a benchmark for other entrepreneurs. I mean, as I told you, we're not, you know, 
we insist. So you can probably be smarter and close around <laughs> with 25 meetings. Uh, so, and I've seen other entrepreneurs, you know, going faster on this. I think this is part of our story. I think, why did I meet that many investors? Um, is essentially that I was not ready. Um, so I got interest and then I was not, you know, prepared to all, for all the answers. And then I think the, the company was not mature enough to raise money. So we didn't have enough customers, enough. We had traction, but, you know, we were not just ready. Uh, and the other thing is we're in a space that is not sexy at all. So we like <laughs> voice, telecom. So many investors, they, we had great numbers. They say, hmm, nice traction, really cool, like really good traction. Seems to be working, but the space is so dull. So, and then at the end, they just give up, right? They just, you know, you have three, four, five meetings. So, and then they just say, no, too early, blah, blah, the usual stuff, no? Let's, mm. let's catch up later. So, but I think this process allowed us to, allowed me to get really a lot better. And then when I got ready, the company was ready, and then I went to meet a few key investors, including Balloton, and then I was, I had a clear vision, I had the right numbers, and so I think that was part of the process to meet all these investors. So I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, I mean, just be ready that you may close after 10 meetings or 20 meetings, or let's say, after meeting 20 investors, but it may take much more time. And at, I mean, it's not a problem for me because you learn and you learn about your business and you learn about how to pitch. And so just be prepared to do that. And so start, maybe start earlier and know that, I mean, something I learned at Family Startups, the VCs are an infinite resource, especially in Silicon Valley. You always <laughs> have VCs to contact. So what happened to us is I contacted 20 VCs I wanted. They said no. And I said 20 more. No. Then 40 more. And then they would, you know, I could go on like that with hundreds of VCs. So just keep on fighting. It's always You will, in the end, find someone that will listen to you and get convinced because you're better and your business has improved over time. And it seems that in a lot of the earlier conversations, you almost needed to convince yourself as well because earlier you were saying, uh, I felt that Aircall wasn't ready for investment at the earlier stage, maybe in the first 20, 40 meetings. And then when you'd, yeah. uh, the company had got more mature, where you had certainly got more used to the kind of scrutiny and the kind of questions that VCs would ask, that eventually you came to the conclusion that you were ready. So yeah, that like, seems most interesting in that if you're an entrepreneur and you've got a, an offer on the table, but you don't feel maybe that your business is ready for investment, that you maybe shouldn't take it. Yeah, there's really a moment where, I mean, all the pieces come together and you say, hey, okay, now I know where I am and where I want to go and I'm able to deliver that message to someone. Uh, and that can take some time, really. And, and as an entrepreneur, you tend to overestimate, you're in sellish more, like you're selling, you're kind of not playing, but you're like, you know, putting a nice, you know, the bride, like, you know, <laughs> nice suit and everything. But you know the reality, and at some point, you say, okay, then I accept this reality, but then I can prove that it's a startup, and now we're mature enough to really get investments. So I'm actually really happy that we, that it took like two, three months, it was not, mm. I mean, it was long, but it was okay because it was a key step in maturing our vision. It was really helpful. It's still helpful today. And I'd better have the investors I have now than having closed at, you know, the first week. 
with people that actually maybe would not have been the right people at the right time. So close when you're ready and close when you know you've got the yes. right investors for you. And almost there, because we're uh, running out of time, I can see. But um, one last question is something that you brought up, which I think is quite funny, but it's, it, it closes a rather interesting and important point. You say you're not a sexy business, that the area of enterprise SaaS telephony doesn't get people hot under the collar, which surprises me, of course. But there will be other entrepreneurs out there that aren't in a particularly sexy area of technology or of uh, enterprise SaaS, for example. How do you deal with that? Do you just keep going and let the figures talk for themselves when you're talking to either potential clients or potential investors or potential new staff? Because a lot of the time with new hires, they want to work for the coolest, latest technology company. And uh, sometimes having a less sexy area of technology may be a bit of a turnoff. How do, you, how do you cope with that if you're talking to a yeah, younger entrepreneur that's maybe also doing a similar thing? Well, I'm convinced that biggest opportunities lie in the, in the most unsexy businesses, right? Because that's, and that's actually what what's happening to us is that, or, I mean, when we present our product, customers just love the product because they've been used to clumsy products. So the product might, you know, might be incomplete and maybe too early for them or whatever, but whether they buy it or not, they really love that because it's an unsexy business. And so you can come with something that's disruptive. And I think, so of course, it's, it's, I mean, regarding employees, it might be more difficult because you're selling telephony and B2B. Um, but I think the employees are really get proud of customer feedback that you get on Twitter, that you get on your support channel, say, guys, I love your product. It's just, I'm in love with that product. And when you hear that, yeah. even if you're doing a B2B SaaS, as an employee, as a developer, or as a, as a sales guy, and I know we talk a lot about this, you're really happy because you think, hey, it's just, I, I create emotions, even if it's not whatever, Instagram, right? But yeah. like, we do create emotions because we, People are not insensitive, right? They just say, okay, I'm going to buy it, but I don't really care. They just give feedback, and they like to give feedback on our product. So even if the area of business is potentially unsexy, the customer feedback is what brings the sexiness. Yes, and I think, <laughs> to, and I think, I think one of the, the key reasons, one of the things we did really well is that from the beginning we said, because that business is unsexy, let's build the sexiest possible product. And we spent a lot of energy and time on the design, on making it like as good as an iPhone. Really sleek design, you know, easy to use, in two minutes you understand how it works and it's just like natural. And we spent a lot of time on this, rather than spending time on building all the telephony features, boring features that you could have. And that's, that has been a big driver for growth for us, because really people say, finally, in the telecom space, a product that I love to use. This is really important. I love to use it because the, the UX and the experience is really nice. It's really different from what exists. So for other entrepreneurs, double down on this. So if you're in an unsexy business, build something that really, really super sexy. Think about how can I do something radically different versus what exists. Olivier, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben.